Well, for a brief season in our life, about a year, Tanya and I led the sixth grade Sunday school class at LaGrange Baptist Church in LaGrange, Kentucky. It was definitely a task that stretched us, but overall, I'd have to say it was a good experience. As a relatively newlywed couple, it gave us an opportunity to minister together to kids in that sixth grade class, which was helpful for our relationship. It also gave me an opportunity to gain experience teaching the Bible, and not just in an academic setting, the seminary, but to a live audience. In this case, a live audience of very squirrely sixth graders. In retrospect, I would have to say that this particular, this particular class was unusually squirrely, even by sixth grade standards. There were several kids in that grade at LaGrange Baptist Church, most of them boys, who were just plain wild. After having taught that class and in many years since served in other ministry capacities, I'm convinced that if you can teach the Bible and do so in a way that's effective to a group of squirrely sixth graders, then preaching in front of 500 people is nothing in comparison. By the way, this is a side note here, that's why I'm always mystified when some churches just look for any volunteer they can find to teach Sunday school classes. Not only does that downplay the crucial importance of ministering to our kids and teaching them the Bible correctly from a young age, it also undersells how hard it is to keep kids' attention, explaining things in a way they can understand. So all that to say, I'm very grateful for the people who teach Sunday school here at Fremont A. Free, and I'm very thankful, too, for my time teaching sixth grade at LaGrange Baptist Church. I learned a lot of lessons that year. I learned that teaching the Bible well takes serious preparation. I learned that keeping the attention of sixth graders is no small task. I also learned that sixth grade boys often have a certain smell to them. By the way, if you're a sixth grade boy here this morning, maybe that's not true of you. Perhaps you smell like a petunia, and that's great. But there are certain sixth grade boys who have a funk to them, and it's not always very pleasant. I also learned that year, though, that there are certain stories that appeal to sixth graders more than others, certain Bible stories. For example, you can make an argument that the greatest chapter, or one of the greatest chapters in the Bible is Romans 8. But for a sixth grader, and in particular a sixth grade boy, they're not as interested in learning about Romans 8 as they are in learning about Samson. Now Samson had the strength to kill a thousand people with a donkey's jawbone. That's way more exciting to a sixth grader than Romans 8. Now to be clear, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach sixth graders Romans 8 or other chapters of the Bible. I would, I would actually argue that we should intentionally teach them chapters just like Romans 8, precisely because they're more inclined to other parts of Scripture, and they need the truth of all of God's Word. It may be harder to capture their attention with chapters like Romans 8, but that doesn't mean it's not worth it. So my point in bringing up Samson in comparison to Romans 8 is not to say we should teach sixth graders more about Samson and less about Romans 8. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, if anything, I'm saying the opposite. My point is simply to say this. There are certain Bible stories that appeal more naturally to sixth graders than others. And actually, and this is how we're coming around circle to Acts 12, today's passage is one of those stories. When you have a guy dying because he's eaten by worms, that's the story that's going to get the attention of sixth graders. In fact, let's just be honest. A story like that probably will get all of our attention. I don't know anyone who can hear a story about a guy who's eaten by worms and dies and thinks, ah, it's kind of boring. I don't know anyone they would think that way. And I guess it's possible, maybe, that some of you have known people who have been eaten by worms and died. I don't want to rule out that possibility. I don't think it's likely, though. So I'm going to guess here that for the rest of us, I'll just call us the normal people, the story we're about to read in Acts 12 is going to get our attention. But I would argue it should not just get our attention because there's a strange death involving worms. I would argue that it should also get our attention because there are some incredibly valuable lessons that we can learn in this passage about who God is, about who we are, about the way the world works, that in the end are far more valuable than even learning about the worms. So here's my hope this morning. 
hope that when we leave here today, we're thinking less about the worms and more about what we might learn about God, ourselves, and the way the world works. Because while the worm aspect of the story may get the attention of every sixth grader, maybe every person, it's the lessons from the story that have the potential to change the way we think and live. So that said, let's read here, Acts 12, 20 to 5. I'm going to ask you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Words will be on the screen here shortly. You can listen as I read, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. There are also pew Bibles if you need one you'd like to access that that's below your seat. So Acts 12, 20 to, 20, 20 to 25 this morning. The Word of God says this, beginning in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John whose other name was Mark. It's the word of God, you may be seated. So last week in my introduction, I talked about children's Sunday school songs. In the light of that conversation, I just should just go ahead and let you know this week that there is a very odd children's song about this particular passage. In fact, I'm not sure that the description odd really does the song justice. I might be more inclined to use the word disturbing. The song literally talks about worms nibbling on King Herod's fingers, his toes, his ears, his nose, his eyes, his thighs, his head, until he was dead. It's kind of disturbing. And what makes the song even more disturbing, at least the version of the song that someone, someone sent me this week, is that the song leader encourages kids to nibble on their fingers like their worms nibbling on King Herod as they sing. That is really strange and more than a little creepy. But I have to say, it's not all that surprising, because again, there's something about worms that tends to grab our attention. And so it doesn't surprise me that someone would try to put together a kid's song about the worms. Now, I would argue they could have done it in a less creepy way. In fact, I'm pretty sure they could have. But I'm not surprised they would do that, because a guy getting eaten by worms does get our attention. But again, as I said earlier, I think there's more going on in the story than just Herod getting eaten by worms. I think there are lessons that we can learn from this passage that are far more valuable than that. And it's those lessons that I want us to be thinking about this morning. So the question at hand this morning then is simply this. What lessons can we learn from a story about a guy who was eaten by worms and died? There are several lessons, actually. I think the first is simply this. Worldly power is both fleeting and hollow. Worldly power is both fleeting and hollow. Now, as we talked about last week, the Herod in question in this passage here in Acts 12 is Herod Agrippa I, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He was the ruler over Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the Transjordan, and the Decapolis. He was an incredibly connected and powerful man. And in chapter 12, his power is on full display. At the beginning of the chapter, you may remember from last week, he decides to lay violent hands on the church. He kills James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Kills him with a sword. Likely he beheaded him. He arrests Peter. He plans to execute him as well. Now, obviously, as we saw last week, the plan to kill Peter did not go as Herod had anticipated. And in that, we began to see some cracks in Herod's power. But at the beginning of this section, we once again see Herod flexing his worldly muscle. Look at verses 20 to 22. Look at the way the passage starts. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, by way of background, you should know that Tyre and Sidon were important coastal cities in Phoenicia, which was to the north of Judea and Samaria. And as it relates to their food supply, we learn in this passage they were dependent upon the region that Herod ruled over. And that became a problem because apparently the people of Tyre and Sidon had done something to anger Herod, and thus they jeopardized their food supply. Hence, we find this scene in verses 20 to 22, where the citizens of Tyre and Sidon are essentially forced to grovel before Herod. Now, to do so, the people of Tyre and Sidon befriend the king's personal assistant, Blastus, and they persuade Blastus to make a case for peace before Herod. Apparently, it works, because on an appointed day, Herod puts on his royal robes, takes his seat upon the throne, and delivers an oration to the people. Clearly, it impresses the crowd, or at the very least, they understand the, pow- the power that Herod possesses over them. So they begin to shout, the voice of a god and not a man. Now, you could make an argument that this is the apex of Herod's power. He's on his throne, wearing his royal robes, delivering a speech, and the crowd is anointing him as a god. If there's ever a picture of power, surely this is it. But one verse later, Herod dead, struck down by an angel of the Lord because he refused to give God glory. He's eaten by worms and breathes his last. And in that unceremonious ending, we are clearly reminded of one simple truth. Worldly power is both fleeting and hollow. To illustrate that point further, consider the case of King Sancho III of Navarre. Sancho became the king of Navarre in the year 1004. In his time, he was able to take control of the kingdoms of Castile and Leon. He even forced the Count of Barcelona to be his vassal. During his reign, he made the Navarrese kingdom strong, politically stable, and independent. For all those reasons, he's considered by some historians to be one of the great rulers of the Middle Age. But here's a question I have for you this morning. Have you ever heard of King Sancho III? Furthermore, do you even know where the kingdom of Navarre was located? Does it impress you that he conquered the kingdoms of Castile and Leon? My answer to those questions is no, no, and no. Listen, I have no doubt that King Sancho III was a big deal in his own time. I'm sure that when he went places, people whispered, look, it's King Sancho. What a big deal. But here's the thing. I've never even heard of the guy or his kingdom until this week. And the only reason I know about him now is because I googled powerful rulers from the Middle Ages. So suffice to say, regardless of how big of a deal he may have been at the time, King Sancho III is not too big of a deal now. And so it is with every worldly leader throughout history. Even the more well-known leaders like Alexander the Great, King Herod, Attila the Hun, Julius Caesar, what do they all have in common? They are all dead. And none of them have any power now. And while other rulers may have come after them and assumed their power, they too died and they too lost their influence. So here's something you need to understand this morning. No matter how powerful a king or politician or business person may be, their power will not last. And that's not just true of figures from the past, by the way. It's true of current figures as well. Whether it be Vladimir Putin, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Kim Jong-un, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, the Prince of Saudi Arabia, or whatever other person you want to throw on the list. Worldly power is fleeting and it is hollow because in the end it cannot and will not last. There is only one king and one kingdom that will last forever. 
And as this passage reminds us, Herod was not that king. And his kingdom was not that kingdom. Herod may have been living under the illusion that he had great power. And even in this passage, you have to be honest, he displays some pretty fantastic power. There are people coming to him, anointing him as a god because they are completely dependent upon him. But in a moment, that power or that illusion of power is shattered. God takes him down. And he does it by using an angel and some worms. So hear this. The kings of the world may sleep in ivory palaces and they may sit on golden thrones. But there is only one kingdom and one throne that will last forever. Every other king and every other kingdom is but temporary. So that's the first lesson of this passage. The worldly power is both fleeting and hollow. The second lesson is actually related to the true king. And that's this, that God is both just and merciful. By just, I mean full of justice. Now, in the context of this passage, why is it that Herod is struck down, eaten by worms, and dies? Why does he do that? Why does that happen? Well, it's because he allowed men to think of him as a god and to worship him as such. Or to say it another way, he refused to give glory to the one true king. Look again at verses 21 to 23. I think this is what we see. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, interestingly enough, the ancient historian Josephus, who is not a Christian, by the way, has essentially corroborated the details of what we find here in Acts 12. According to Josephus' record, on the appointed day that's being spoken of here, Herod appeared in his royal robe, which was made of silver thread and glistened in the sun. The robe was so brilliant, and Herod appeared so powerful, that the people did indeed begin to worship him as a god. According to Josephus, when Herod did not discourage their worship, he immediately became ill and died within a few days of extreme abdominal pain. That fits Luke's account here, even if the two accounts differ slightly in their emphasis. The idea that Herod died suddenly of abdominal pain is not at all consistent with the, died, with the idea that he died by, eat, by being eaten by worms. Now, having said that, I should just be honest here and point out that over the years, many, many attempts have been made to explain the worms. Some have suggested that Luke was simply saying that Herod died and then he was buried, and then when he was buried, worms ate his body. Others have said or suggested that being eaten by worms is a proverbial way of saying that he died a dramatic death. Or still others have tried to point to a wide variety of medical abnormalities that could explain what happened to Herod. But I think it's best just to text, take the text as it reads. Given the word order, it seems pretty clear that an angel of the Lord afflicts Herod. He's then eaten by worms, and then at some point he dies. Now the angel of the Lord immediately strikes him, he gets these worms, and then he passes away. Now, we don't know. Were the worms a parasite? Were they tapeworms? Were they some other unknown worm? The truth is, we don't know. And to speculate would be just that, speculation. All we know is that Herod was struck down by an angel of the Lord, eaten by worms, and dies. And the point, I think, is simply this, that Herod died a spectacular death as a result of the judgment of God, because he refused to give God glory and instead accepted glory for himself. And in that, I would argue that we are reminded that God is both just and merciful. Now, he's just because eventually everyone gets what they deserve. Galatians 6, 7 put, says it this way, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In the case of Herod, he violently persecuted the body of Christ. He was taking glory that was meant for God alone. 
And he may have been able to get away with this for a while, at least the persecution part, but eventually God's justice caught up to him. And so it always is. In the end, God's justice will prevail. Right now, it may seem like there are bad guys winning, but know this, that will not always be the case. God's justice will eventually come. His wrath will not tarry forever. And the death of Herod reminds us of that reality. It reminds us of the inevitable march of God's justice. But I would also argue that in a roundabout way, his death also reminds us of the mercy of God. And I say that for this reason. If God struck down every person on the spot who failed to give him proper glory, all of us would have been dead a long time ago. And the fact that stories like this don't happen more regularly are a reminder to us that God is merciful. This last Saturday, college basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski coached his final, final home game as a basketball coach at Duke University. Coach K, as he's often referred to, is retiring at the end of this basketball season. He's retiring as the winningest coach in college basketball history. So his last game at Cameron Indoor Stadium, where Duke plays, was a big deal. Now, I should just go ahead and tell you from the start here, I'm not a big Duke basketball fan. So we didn't watch Coach K's final game. I wasn't disappointed that they lost either. But because I'm a sports fan, I was interested in the history of the moment. We did turn briefly to the channel after the game was over to watch the post-game festivities. And I have to say that the post-game festivities honoring the coach were a little bit disconcerting. After the game, Coach Coach K went to the locker room to address the team briefly, and the crowd waited for him to come back out, and then they would have a huge ceremony to honor him. And when he came back out of the locker room, many in the crowd began to bow down to him in a worship-like motion. That was a little bit odd. But the most disconcerting and the most ironic part of the scene involved the Duke's mascot. As you may know, Duke's nickname is the Blue Devils. And their mascot is a guy who dresses up like, you guess it, a Blue Devil. And when Coach K came back out of the locker room, the Blue Devil got down on his knees, bowed down prostrate, and bowed over and over in what seemed like an act of worship. Now, if ever there was a moment that was fit for a sermon illustration, surely that's it. Right? There's a devil guy bowing down to a coach. That captures the idolatry of sports perfectly. And here's the thing. It didn't seem like it, at least from my estimation, that that Coach K mined the adoration. Now, for a variety of reasons, we didn't listen to the entirety of his speech after the game. So perhaps later on, he went on to denounce their worship-like motions. But I kind of doubt it. And yet, here's the thing. He wasn't struck down on the spot like King Herod. Why is that? It's because of God's mercy. It's because of God's mercy towards him that he would have time to repent and trust Christ. I don't know where he is spiritually. I'm assuming he doesn't know Christ. God is being merciful to him. And here's the reality. Every one of us in this room could say honestly that we deserve the same fate as Herod. Because there have been many times where we've stolen God's glory as well. How many times has someone praised you? And rather than giving glory to God, you've internalized the praise and thought, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. Hear this. God is totally justified in this passage to strike down Herod on the spot. But given our track record of stealing glory, he would be justified to do the same to us. But he hasn't, because he's merciful. And of course, that combination of justice and mercy are most clearly displayed at the cross. On the cross, God's justice was fully satisfied in that the punishment for sin was paid. But at the cross, God's mercy was also perfectly displayed in that Jesus took the punishment for us. God is both just and merciful. 
That was displayed on the cross. I think it's displayed or at least implied here in Acts 12. So that's the second lesson of the passage, that God is both just and merciful. Lesson number three, the word of God is unstoppable. Now the contrast here at the end of the passage is stunning. Look at verses 22 to 24. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod, one of the most powerful men in the ancient world, is eaten by worms and he dies. But the word of God, meanwhile, increases and multiplies. It's a dramatic reversal from the beginning of the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod has all the power, and the church is in major trouble. It would appear that the church is even in danger of being snuffed out. James is dead. Peter's on the verge of execution. But as the end of the chapter reminds us, that appearance that we had at the beginning of the chapter, that things weren't going well, is just that. It's just an appearance, and appearances are not always what they seem. Listen, there may be times where it seems like the Word of God and the church of God may be in real trouble. But understand this, in the end, the word of God will not be chained. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. In the last couple of months, I've found myself increasingly concerned about the direction that we're headed in in this country with regards to laws and ordinances. Specifically, it seems to me only a matter of time before churches find themselves in real trouble for simply teaching what the Bible says on issues like sexuality and gender. And more than that, in the corporate world, church members are going to be in real danger of losing their jobs if they simply hold the biblical teaching on those same issues. That's scary. But as this passage reminds us, the word of God will win out in the end. Now that's not to say that people won't lose their jobs. That's not to say the church won't find itself in hot water. That's not to say that some of us might end up in jail or worse. But know this, no matter what happens, the word of God will not be thwarted. The message of the kingdom cannot be stopped. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be quenched. Herod may have killed James. He may have put Peter in prison. The church may have been in real danger. But at the end of the passage, Herod is dead and the word of God marches on. Listen, I don't doubt that the days ahead could be hard for the church. But I also know this. The word of God will not be stopped. Earlier this week, Anna sent Gemini a music video of a song entitled Bury the Workman. Throughout the song, the band sings about various persecution the church has faced over the years, including the deaths of prominent figures like Stephen and James, which we've read about in the book of Acts. But they also sing about how the message of the gospel has not been stopped despite the persecution. The basic tagline of the song is simply this, you can bury the workman, but the work will go on. And indeed it will. In this passage, James is killed, Peter is imprisoned, but the word of God increases and multiplies. Even the last verse, verse 25, it mentions Saul and Barnabas returning from Jerusalem. mentions also John Mark as a subtle reminder to us that all this may be going on in the church, but the work carries on. And the reason why it carries on and why the word of God cannot be stopped brings us to the last, and I would argue, overarching lesson of the passage. It's something I've already mentioned in brief, and that's this. There is only one king and one kingdom that will last forever. In Acts 12, you have two competing kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Herod and you have the kingdom of God. Or to say it more generically, you have the kingdom of the world and you have the kingdom of God. Now hear this, without question, there will be times where it seems like the kings of this world and the kingdom of this world is winning. In fact, in this chapter, at the very beginning of chapter 12, it seems like Herod's kingdom is winning. 
But at the end of the chapter, as Herod's flesh is infested by worms and the word of God is increasing, is there any doubt which kingdom will win out in the end? There's not. One of the great themes of the book of Acts is the continued progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ despite persecution, despite martyrdom, despite beatings and famines and imprisonments and torture. The gospel advances. Why? Because there's only one king and one kingdom that will last forever. And the gospel is the message of that kingdom. And more than anything, I think that's the overarching theme of this passage, the lesson that we need to take away. There's one king and one kingdom that will last forever. So listen, I get why worms take center stage in this passage. It's both gruesome and intriguing, which is a recipe for the interest of every sixth grader. But it's the lessons that we can learn from the worms and the dead guy that I want us to be thinking about as we leave this morning. Because those lessons not only change our perspective on the story, they should change the way that we live and think. For example, if worldly power is both fleeting and hollow, that's the first lesson, then why in the world would we make it our goal to accumulate that type of power? I know that for many people in life, their ultimate goal is to accrue fame, wealth, power, influence. This is why so many people move to Hollywood each year to try to make it and become a star. It's why many will sell their souls in order to climb up the corporate and political ladder. It's why many in this room will sacrifice their relationship with Christ so they can make a little bit more money, or so their kids can have a few more experiences, or they can earn a few more pats on the back from people in the community. But at the end of the day, know that when you are accumulating that type of influence and power, in the end, it is hollow. That power is temporary, and the status that comes with it is temporary too. Sadly, though, I think we lose sight of this sometimes, and we start to think of ourselves as bigger deals than we are, and more powerful than we actually are. I read a story recently where a U.S. senator was at a dinner party, and they ran out of butter. His response to the waiter or waitress who informed him of the butter situation was, do you realize who I am? I'm a U.S. senator. Now, to be fair, the senator was the one telling the story, and he was doing so in a self-depreciating manner. And in the end, you should know he did not get the butter. But the fact that the story actually takes place tells us a lot about our human condition, doesn't it? Namely, we all tend to think we are much bigger deals than we actually are. And the reason why we think we're a big deal is because we assign too much value to worldly power. But take it from Herod, no matter how big of a deal you think you are, your power is limited, and it is nothing in comparison to the Almighty God. So listen, if you've made it your goal to accumulate power and influence and wealth here, perhaps it's time to rethink that goal in light of the fleeting and hollow nature of worldly power. But in light of God's justice and mercy, which is the second lesson, I would argue that we should live and think differently also. Now, when I think of Herod's power, excuse me, when I think of Herod's death, it both encourages me and humbles me. It encourages me because I know that in the end, evil will not prevail. The Adolf Hitlers and Osama bin Ladens of the world eventually encounter the justice of God. There is not one wicked deed that will go unpunished. And in a world full of child abusers and crooked leaders and murderers and violent and profane people, I'm thankful that God's justice will not tarry forever. And that way, I'm encouraged by the death of Herod. He got what he had coming to him. But I'm also humbled by his death because I realize, as I alluded to earlier, that I deserve the same fate as Herod. I may not have executed an apostle or persecuted the church or openly let others worship me like Herod does, but I too have stolen God's glory and I too have rebelled against an infinite God. And like Herod, I too deserve the wrath of God. But because of his patience, he didn't strike me down. And because of Jesus' work on the cross... 
And because of my belief in Christ, which is a result of the grace of God too, I know that I will not have to face the eternal wrath of God either. And in that way, I would say this, more than anything, the justice and mercy of God should drive us to the cross. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm really glad that you're here. But you should know this, the justice of God is coming your way. The same justice that struck down Herod will find you sooner or later. But here's the good news. It's not too late. Turn to Christ today. Run to Christ because Christ paid the punishment for your sin. The punishment that you deserve to pay. That if you would run to Him, you can find forgiveness and peace with God. If you are a Christian, I would encourage you to meditate on God's justice and mercy as displayed on the cross. You could have been Herod, but because you're in Christ, you're not. And you won't ever face the wrath of God in eternity because of Jesus either. And that should make us humble and grateful. We could have faced the same fate he did. But because of the mercy of God, we won't have to. That should change the way we live and think. But also, in light of the word of God being unstoppable, the third lesson, that too should change the way we live and think. Anymore, there's not a week that goes by where I don't feel discouraged by some news headline regarding the direction our country or the world's headed in. But if the word of God is unstoppable, I don't need to lose heart. Instead, I would argue that I need to double down. If the message of the cross is the only message that can save, if the Bible is the word of God that points to Jesus, and if the commands of God are good and for our flourishing, and if the message of the kingdom cannot be quenched, then where else would I go, or what else can I point people to other than to the word of God? Contrary to what our culture may say, it's not unloving to teach what the Bible says. In fact, the most unloving thing you can do is ignore the Word of God or change the Word of God to try to earn the approval of others. If the Word of God is the Word of God, let's let the Word of God be the Word of God. And let's declare it boldly and without fear. Let's double down in confidence. And let's do so because it is God's Word. And because it's His Word, that makes all the difference. That brings us to the last lesson. That there's only one king and one kingdom that lasts forever. And I would argue that that too should change the way we live and think. Know this. One day, Vladimir Putin will die and his power will go with him. The same is true of Joe Biden, Donald Trump, any other politician or king that you want to put in that blank. Any person who's ever lived or ever held power, they will face the same reality. There is only one king and one kingdom that will last forever. And it's Jesus. So do not put your hope in a politician or a prince. If your hope lives and dies with every election cycle, you are missing out on the reality of the one true king. There's one king that will reign forever. And that king will not be on the ballot in 2022 or 2024 because he's already on the throne. So let's put our hope in him and let's live for him and for his kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm thankful to live in the United States. I'm glad to be a citizen of this country. My citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And I should live that way. And if you are a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to live the same way. There's only one king and one kingdom that will last forever. To live for anyone else or for anything else is an exercise in foolishness. And I think that's the greatest lesson of this passage. Yeah, it's true. The worms may get the attention of sixth graders worldwide. But the enduring lesson of Acts 12 is that there is one king and one kingdom, and of his throne there will be no end. And let's be clear, that kingdom is not the kingdom of Herod or the kingdom of any other world leader or politician. It's the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So let us live for that king, and let us live for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would take the lessons of this passage to heart. In particular, I think about the justice of God that we see on display here. Herod rightly deserved to be struck down because he did not give glory to you. He did not recognize that you are the king. He thought he was the king, that he had all the power, when in reality, you are the creator of the universe. You are the one who made all things. You are the one who tells the ocean where to stop. You are the one who knows all stars by name. And so as we see the justice of God rightly poured on, out on Herod, it reminds us that we too deserved a similar fate. But because of Jesus, we have hope. And Lord, I pray that we would see that hope today. I pray that we would see the justice and mercy of, of you that is intermingling in this passage. Your mercy displayed to the church. Your mercy displayed in that the interaction with Herod doesn't happen all the time. And yet your justice too. And that we would see that and we would flee to the cross. That we would remember at the cross, it's where the justice and mercy that you have is combined. You poured out your wrath on your son Jesus so that the punishment for sin might be paid. And yet, he took the punishment for us, displaying your perfect mercy. And so I pray that if there are any in this room today who do not know you, that today they would see your justice but they would also see your mercy and they would run to Jesus. Oh, I pray that would happen today. And for those of us who are Christians, I pray that we would see the great justice and mercy that you display, that you displayed at the cross, and we would be filled with gratitude and that we would live for you, the one true king. Oh, Lord, please help us today. Help us to do this for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. One last thing to do here before I read our benediction. Today is the second Sunday of the month, which means that it is a benevolent offering Sunday. Once a month, we take an offering just to help people in our church who are in financial need. And so if that's you, if you're in financial need, please let us know. It would be our joy to be able to help you. The basket for that benevolent offering is out in the foyer. The basket's here in the sanctuary for normal offering for care cards, but in the foyer is a benevolent offering. So just wanted to remind you of that. And I'm going to ask you to stand now here for our benediction, which comes from Numbers chapter 6. Number six says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great week.